Welcome to Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. Speaking with chefs, artists, and food makers, farmers, authors, and tastemakers who are passionate about everything delicious. A very good Sunday to you, food lovers. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. If you have a taste for life, well, then this is your show. I have mouthwatering radio commentary on everything delicious this hour and every Sunday with the best culinary thinkers, authors, and experts highlighted each show. Plus, I cover health and wellness, travel, tech, wine, mixology, and more. This is your destination for delicious conversation. From shopping and preparation to presentation and cultivating your best dishes, I'll help you bring it all together. I hope you will listen in for great ideas and chef's tips plus knowledge galore. And by the way, there are no reservations needed. You can tune in every Sunday, but if you happen to have missed a show, I hope that you will listen to my tasty podcasts on iTunes, FeedBurner, and Blueberry under Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. You'll find a direct link from my website where I'm always serving up seconds with recipes galore at chefjamie.com. And you can find my daily dish on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. Okay, to kick off this Sunday show, I thought I would share one of my favorite ingredients and in fact, an ingredient um, that's getting a lot of attention of late Israelis will tell you that tahini is to Israel like ketchup is to America, but it's white. And tahini is not new. Rather, tahini has been around for thousands of years. But something about this Middle Eastern spread that I love, this paste made from ground toasted sesame seeds, is driving award-winning chefs around the country to tahina crazy. Now, tahini is a paste made from ground sesame seeds. It's extremely versatile. It can be used in cooking sweet and savory dishes. And even better, it is packed with a ton of essential vitamins and minerals. Now, there are two main types of tahini. You can find hulled and unhulled tahini. And if you can get your hands on unhulled tahini, it is best because it's made from the whole sesame seed and it leaves the nutritional value intact. As I mentioned, though, there are a ton of health benefits to any tahini that you buy and use. Uh, number one, it is rich in minerals like uh, phosphorus, lecithin, magnesium, potassium, and iron. It is one of the best sources of calcium out there, if you didn't know. It's high in vitamin E and vitamins B1, B2, and B3. Tahini is said to prevent anemia. It helps to maintain healthy skin and muscle tone. And tahini is a 20% complete protein, which makes it a higher protein source than most nuts. Last but not least... Tahini is very easy for the body to digest because it has a very high alkaline mineral content, which is also said to be great for weight loss. Okay, I'm in. And then it is very high in unsaturated fat, but that happens to be a good fat. Now, the sesame paste called tahini that comes in a jar is becoming more easily accessible at conventional grocery stores. It's having a, a serious moment in sweet and savory dishes around the country. And it's most commonly associated with hummus and the other savory dips 
but there is way more to tahini. Now, you can make tahini at home, by the way, but homemade tahini requires a very powerful blender and a lot of patience. It is much simpler and, in my opinion, equally delicious when you purchase it store-bought. So please take the easy route and buy a jar of tahini, okay? I thought I would uh, aspire you, though, and inspire you to play with tahini in your cooking. So I have some delectable ideas for how chefs are using sesame paste in their kitchens and, of course, why you should, too. You can always use it um, to sweeten sweet treats. Like tahini adds earthiness to desserts. This wonderful nutty flavor that I would consider somewhat umami, that new sense that has that that je ne sais quoi. The, I can't put my finger on it, but it's so rich and so delicious. Most commonly, tahini is used in halava when it comes to sweets. That's the crumbly Middle Eastern confection that I happen to have a crush on. Um, You can also make the easiest two-ingredient vegan truffles. Are you listening? Because these are really cool. By mixing a cup of tahini with a cup of melted dark chocolate. You refrigerate it until it's set, and then you scoop it or cut it and roll it into these rich, nutty, wonderful truffles. Sounds yummy, right? You can also use tahini in the savory application as a spread because hummus would be lost without its right-hand man. It's tahini that gives it the rich, creamy texture and the addictive flavor. But I also love it in baba ganoush, the smoky eggplant dip that you find at Lebanese restaurants. You'll find tahini drizzled over falafel, of course. But some love it so much that they've been known to spread a toasted piece of bread with a thick coat of tahini and drizzle it with honey. And trust me, you have a truly wonderful breakfast that will fill you up and satiate you with the sweet and the umami and the salty and the crunchy. It's just so good. You can also use tahini in place of yogurt if you're looking to go dairy-free and add it to your smoothie because tahini makes a really good substitute as well for almond or peanut butter. And then there is the tahini and vegetable pairing. It might sound odd, but earthy tahini and roasted sweet potatoes are having a serious New York minute. So the next time you roast a sweet potato, drizzle some tahini over the top. Other vegetables are getting a good tahini treatment as well, like um, cauliflower or Brussels sprouts dressed with a tahini vinaigrette. So add some to your favorite dressing next time you shake it in a mason jar. And then when you're roasting broccoli or cauliflower florets or maybe an acorn squash or even better yet, a whole chicken for Sunday supper, drizzle some tahini on it. Trust me, you will thank me. It is outrageous. I will post some tahini-inspired recipes once again at chefjamie.com. And do let me know what you use tahini in or for. You can always email me direct, jamie at chefjamie.com. It's J-A-M-I-E at chefjamie.com. Okay, moving on to food news this Sunday. Here's some interesting news that you can use. Uh, Printed in a culinary periodical this past week, there is new information about the two most influential groups in the food industry that are looking to change those pesky expiration or sell-by labels on the packaged food that you buy. Did you know that the labels don't really mean what they appear to mean? Foods don't actually expire. 
Um, and I digress, but did you know there are two foods in the world that actually don't have a sh- shelf life? You know, they, they never expire per se. Um, there is the Twinkie, much infamous and loved. And then did you know that honey never goes bad? But the rest of the goodness that we buy um, doesn't actually expire either. It might not taste as good because it's not fresh anymore, but the company is using that sell-by note to protect the reputation of their products. The problem is that it's having a perverse effect on consumers like you and me to throw out perfectly good food. So the Grocery Manufacturers Association and the Food Marketing Institute are hoping to prevent that. They are advising major food manufacturers and retailers to abolish the current labels and asking the companies to use two new labels, the best if used by for a particular date where it would probably go on most foods, this best if used by term, and then a use by date that would go on products that would become less safe as they age. Now, they've been pushing for this reform for a long time in order to reduce food waste because expiration dates on food are not required by any federal law. Interesting, right? Although most states do require dates on meat or milk. Um, If a food product passes its expiration date, it may get stale may not taste good, may go sour. But according to the food safety experts, spoiled food is unpalatable, but it's not particularly hazardous. I think this is very interesting when it comes to our food, what we eat, consume, we buy, we use. And I think it's interesting to note. So stay tuned for further updates. And do not touch your dial because there is lots more delicious conversation coming up in your radio. William Sitwell, the famed Master Chef UK judge, is sitting down to share Britain's elevating culinary landscape. And before the end of the hour, we'll dish about the state of the egg industry. Interesting stuff. You'll want to stay tuned. William Sitwell back with us in just a moment. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen with more fabulous food in your radio right after this. Delighting your palate every Sunday. Welcome back. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Award-winning food editor and author William Sitwell asked 100 of Britain's best chefs, cooks, bakers, and local food heroes what they cook for the people they love. And the results are a dazzling celebration of the diversity of British food and culture. Yes, Britain does have culinary culture. They've come a long way. In a new and extraordinary cookbook entitled The Really Quite Good British Cookbook, Nigella Lawson divulges how to bake her chocolate Guinness cake, and Jamie Oliver delivers an unrivaled fantastic fish pie. William Sitwell is best known as a critic on the BBC show Master Chef and an accomplished food writer and editor, and he's here to dish live from London on the beautiful release. Hi, William. I welcome you to the show. Thank you. Hi, Jamie. Great to be with you. (laughs) Oh, and glad to have you. Um, The food in Britain 
is really quite good now, you say. And I would agree, seeing that you have some really big names on the food scene map, don't you? Could you share some of the best and the brightest, please? Well, first of all, yeah, you say it's really quite good and you reflect the modest name that we've given this cookbook. <laughs> and when in England we say something's really quite good, we mean it's really very good. Right. So what this book demonstrates actually is that the food scene in this country is, I think, at its zenith. And what is extraordinary is the diversity of cuisines we have here. Um, we have an extraordinary breadth of foreign um, dishes that you can eat across the country. I think what's particularly interesting is that if you go into a, a small provincial town, so I'm not talking about a city like, like uh, London or Manchester or Glasgow, you can eat food from, from Italy, China, France, Malaysia, Vietnam, it is quite extraordinary. And this book, for me, the idea really was distilling hmm. all of that into a single book and asking people to share recipes that they would cook for the people they love. So we have a glittering array of stars from Jamie Oliver to Gordon Ramsay to Nigella, but also we've got some of our best-known bakers, um, a Frenchman from Bath, which is in the southwest of the UK, called Richard Bertinet. Uh, but we also have some unknown people. In fact, there's a lady from my village. She's a farmer's wife called Sarah Webb who has her recipe for um, it's, her, it's her mother's recipe for sherry trifle. Mm. And across the book, what we demonstrate is actually, you, you say you know, we say we're really quite good. We are an, an astonishing country when it comes to, comes to food. There may, it may be that there's a reputation that we don't always want to welcome in people from around the world, but we want to welcome in their food. I can tell mm. you and this, this book demonstrates that we are in a really exciting place in this country now. I still love fish and chips. And I will say, though, I've had some incredible Asian cuisine in London. I've dined yeah. in tremendous style at Gordon Ramsay at Claridge's in years past, one of the top 10 meals of my life. I mean, that was a, a most elevated gastronomic experience, being at Claridge's, watching not only the service staff like a ballet, work that dining room. But I was taken into the kitchen, William, and to see the level of quality, and that's very much a Gordon Ramsay thing, the perfection that is expected is a testament to the fact that cuisine in Britain has elevated. Yeah, and, and he hasn't got that restaurant anymore in Claridge's, but you will find right. that scene in restaurants across the country and particularly in London. Hmm. Uh, we have people um, who are operating now in the service sector in terms of waiting staff who are as good as they were many years ago in the United States, you know, when people used to sort of turn their nose up at waiting tables. People see it as a great job now, and that's made a big difference. But, yeah, you've seen the sort of theatrical presentation. You've seen the kind of military precision in which people are operating in those kitchens. And there's many kitchens like that right across the capital and right up and down uh, right, right up and down the country. So I'm glad you had a taste of it. But the, what we do, I mean, I'm glad you mentioned the idea of having great Asian food. Um, I think we knock the socks off cities like New York and Paris. We have not just great Indian cuisine here, but we have great regional Indian cuisine. You, you can get street food from specific parts of India in this country mm. and in this great city. And the same is, is the case with Italy. You just don't have Italian restaurants now. We have restaurants that reflect particular regions of Italy, like Liguria or, or Piedmont or Abruzzo, for example. So yes. 
we're, we're very lucky. We're very you, lucky. You are. You've come a long way. I haven't. We have, to... come, a long, we have come a long way. <laughs> yeah. You know, but we had a few hiccups along the way. We had sure. two world wars. We had rationing, <laughs> and the, there is a thing, and there is a part of the British character that stoically accepts, um, you know, austerity. And one of the reasons why we came out of the Second World War healthier than ever was because actually British cooks um, thrived on the ration. A, because they thought, well, we, it's our patriotic duty. But also they were innovative and they were quite happy to eat relatively plain food. I mean, people wouldn't really cope with that nowadays. But um, no. there's, a, there's a stoicism that probably uh, held back our food culture. And it wasn't until post-war in the late 1950s when people like Elizabeth David, who you may have heard of, um, well, you will know, but maybe you know your, your listeners may not know of her, but she brought her experience of living in in parts of the Mediterranean to London. Yes, I know the name. About, she talked about she she talked about the idea of uh, of food in a romantic way hmm. for the first time, and yes. I think that set people alive. And then you know the the onset of um, uh, of television. And the fact that supermarkets now can purvey that food culture because they can import food from all over the world. And the fact that food has become so important in the media. Every newspaper supplement has it. Food bloggers are massive, food apps and so on. So nowadays, it's perfectly acceptable to listen to two men talk about food, whereas, <laughs> they, whereas 20 years ago, they would have talked about golf. Of course. But there has been a massive change in culture. Yes, and the innovation coming out of Britain is one that I believe the U.S. follows. I'd love to dish on some of the recipes. There are some really fabulous ideas and inspiration in the book, like um, Chef Yotam Ottolenghi. He grills banana bread and serves it with tahini and honeycomb, and I can't wait to make that. Well, Yotam Ottolenghi is very famous over here. He, he really came to prominence about 10 or 12 years ago when he started um, a small deli in Notting Hill. And um, he was very much a guy who, he started to influence all the kind of middle-class dinner parties across this country because people wanted to start tasting his zesty salads because he used things like pomegranates and, and he used lamb in a way that was redolent of the, the, the origins of him and his family, which is, which is Israel specifically. Mm -hmm. So he brought those sort of tastes and flavors to, to the kind of the middle classes. And he has influenced so many chefs. I mean, I was interviewing, I have a little radio show too in this country, and I was interviewing one of his protégés who now has a, um, a cafe specializing in the food of the streets of Tel Aviv. And he came through um, the kitchens of Yotam Ottolenghi. And Yotam's grilled banana bread with tahini honeycomb is a great example yes. of, of the sort of, um, you know, his food. And it's smooth and it's nutty. Mm. And um, uh, it he looks brilliant. It. He like he serves it as, as breakfast on Christmas Day. Yes, I'm all for that, by the way. And I very much appreciate your humility. It's not such a little radio show, William, <laughs> in fact. Um, and I happen to love to speak to other radio hosts because there's <laughs> there's such a camaraderie in what we share and how we share it. So, Well, I'll um, repay the compliment and you can come on my show. Well, thank you. I would absolutely love that. <laughs> um, can we eat hot buttered crab while we talk? I ate some crab. I'm in London today. It's a Sunday. I, I'm not always in town on a, at the weekend, but I was today. And I was um, at an amazing Italian restaurant called Palatina run by a young guy called Stevie Pal. And I had some crab. 
the hot butter crab dish you refer to is cooked by a great friend of mine called Tom Parker Bowles. You call him you, Tom PB, right? Tom PB. You yes. may have come across his mother, who's married to our uh, um, a great um, uh, heir to the throne. Yes. But he's a wonderful food writer and critic, and he cooks the sort of food that it's that sort of warming comfort food that he learnt to cook for his family. And he has a dish of hot butter crab where it's fresh crab and he uses both the brown and the white meat. And it's very simple, you know, mixed in a bowl with a few things, a dash of Tabasco. It looks luscious. William, I don't want to let you go. Will you stay with us longer? Of course. More with food editor and the BBC's master chef critic, William Sitwell, right after this. Chef Jamie Gwen, don't go away. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio, dishing on the contemporary food culture in Britain. William Sitwell is here, the award-winning editor of Waitrose Food, a broadcaster himself, and a judge on BBC's Master Chef. He has compiled some of the best recipes coming out of Britain today in the really quite good British cookbook as we continue a conversation on the fact that uh, Londoners and beyond are no doubt food lovers and foodies today. Um, William, we left off talking about hot buttered crab. You made a reference to an uh, Italian restaurant. I just have to ask you, is Signor Sassi still around? Yeah, very much so. And Oh, there I is, love it there. Yeah, and, and uh, there's a guy, he's a friend of mine, he's in the book actually, called Aldo Zilli, and he's their sort of ambassador, uh, celebrity chef, and uh, you can find him. And yeah, Senior Sassi in Knightsbridge, great place. Yeah. Wonderful restaurant. Okay, back to the food. Um, there is a, a truth in the fact that uh, fish pie is one of the cornerstones of British cuisine, right? But Jamie Oliver has done an extraordinary job at elevating... British cuisine and sharing it with the masses. We love him here. You know that. Uh, yeah, we, we still love him here too. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we don't mind you grabbing a little bit of him. Yes, um, and rightfully uh, so. He's, you know, he, it, it's tough him because he's had a lot of exposure over the years, um, but he's, you know, he's a campaigner. And I think that um, some people have been a bit sort of cynical about him. But actually, when you meet him, he is what, you know, he is what he is. You know, and there's no side. And he's a very charming, very passionate guy. And he has, I think, I think he's one of the people who has really encouraged a generation of, of cooks because he's made it, he made it cool for guys to cook. Mm. And yes. he was toiling away in a restaurant in West London called The River Cafe. And they were making a TV show about, about the restaurant. And they suddenly spotted this young guy. And he had a small spot on that show. And, some, and then and people realized, that, you know, that. There was, there was something to him. There was a, a sort of magic in this, this Cockney-speaking hmm. kind of East End or geezer, this guy from Essex, um, who's talked about food in a way that was completely fresh. And, of course, you know, his passion, obviously, is Italian food, and that's the, the origins of his restaurant life. But he's become much more than that. And through his TV shows, I think he's really enlightened the entire generation. He does a happy fish pie. Um, <laughs> That's what he calls is, it. I love yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And it, but fish pie does make you happy. You know, Friday supper. You know, shoving all those ingredients from. Um, and he puts in a bit of bacon as well as leeks and carrots and celery, and he has a little bit of 
nutmeg that he grates on top. And it's got that lovely bit of English mustard just to give it a little bit of a kick. But he uses all sorts of fish fillets and um, as well as, you know, gurnard, coli, pouting trout. Um, he says, you, you know, speak to your fishmonger, get a good sustainable fish and um, layer on plenty of mashed potato. Oh, yes. And, and would your mother or grandmother or the cooks in your family believe that that represents fish pie respectfully? I think so. I mean, every family who has a cook or every mother or dad who's a great cook has their own way of doing a fish pie. And they can be almost militant about the <laughs> fact that their fish pie is the fish pie. Some think you need, you know, some put scallops in, some put prawns in. Some think that if you do that, it's a crime right. against humanity. Punishment and, uh, worthy. Sort of, yeah, exactly. You should be exiled and locked <laughs> up in a dark room for the rest of your life for putting a prawn in. I'm happy to taste all sorts of different ones. I think the key thing is that there's a, bit of, there's a little bit of sauce in it. I actually, God forbid, I like to have a dollop of mayonnaise on mine. Do you really? Yeah, I'm afraid so. Some people like ketchup. That's fine by me. If my kids want to put ketchup on their fish pie, I don't have a problem with that. You so do have a thing fish. for ketchup. Don't you? Well, catch, yeah. Well, I mean. Well, we do too here as well. Although, did you know that salsa has outsold ketchup in the U.S.? Well, you're just becoming so fashionable. I know, aren't we? We're, we're so forward thinking. Sure. I, I happen to appreciate your passion for ketchup. And, and Coca-Cola. Have you had Nigella Lawson's ham in Coca-Cola? This recipe, I know she has shared on her cooking shows that air here in the U.S. And it's a, it's a southern staple, essentially, that she has made her own. Um, but that is a picture in the book. Because, by the way, the photos in the book are beautiful. I mean, this is a, a gorgeously uh, compiled uh, and printed book. Um, that photo makes me want to lick the page of ham. Well, the, all the <laughs> photographs were um, taken by a girl called Lizzie Mason, who's a real up-and-coming talent. And I work with also with one of the country's best um, art directors, Tabitha Hawkins, stylist Rosie Ramson, a great little team um, who produced it. And we should also mention the cover because the cover is a, is a cover of, of a cookbook that, that, you know, I don't think anyone will ever have expected or seen before. Oh, not but at first all. Of all. But first of all, yeah, that, that dish, amazing, ham in Coca-Cola. I yes. think that it horrifies some people. But actually, oh, I think it's brilliant. Well, I, what she, I love the fact she says one thing before we start, don't even consider using diet coke, it's full fat or nothing. Right. And the result, however scary you might think, is, as she says, it is magnificent and converts anyone who eats it. Yes, it's, it's the really sugar. Surprising. It's the sugar yeah. in the Coca-Cola that takes the ham and offsets, offsets the salt to a whole new level. Yeah, it offsets the salt. Yeah, you've got this sweet and spiky. Right. Um, it's a really, really clever idea. And uh, that it I'm, is. as you say, I'm sure she got she took influence from um, mm. rather closer to where you are. Than yes, so, to where Southern style. The really quite good British cookbook is a celebration of the breath and the creativity and the richness of Britain's unique and ever-rising food culture. It is a stunning snapshot of contemporary gastronomic pleasures across the pond. I hope you will check it out. And as William mentioned, a portion of the proceeds do go to a charity that works to give food to the hungry and help tackle food waste and poverty. And so um, I congratulate you, William. It was a delight to speak with you. I think the cookbook is just brilliant. Maybe it should be called the really quite brilliant British cookbook <laughs> in, your, in your next uh, volume. I think that sounds a really good idea. Uh, okay. I think if we, if we can sell out, we yeah. can be a little bit... <laughs> 
We can be a little bit less English and a little bit less modest. We'll, we'll work on that for sure. The book is available um, on Amazon, of course, um, just releasing in bookstores. And you can follow uh, award-winning food editor and writer William Sitwell's work, of course, if you tune in to the BBC's show, Master Chef. Next time I'm in London, William, I, I would love to sit down to a meal with you. We're going to do that. You Thank tell you. me. Come on my radio show. We'll go and we'll eat until we pop. Oh, I can't wait. Oh, you are so my kind of guy. Thank you for sharing the time, for calling in. We certainly appreciate it. And congratulations on the book. As the delicious conversation continues, you do hear from the best culinary thinkers from around the world on this show. You wouldn't dare touch your dial now, would you? We'll be right back. Dedicated to great taste every Sunday in your radio. Welcome back. Chef Jamie Gwen here. Briarly Wright is the nutrition editor for Eating Well Media Group, and she oversees all nutrition content across Eating Well's platforms. The January-February edition of Eating Well magazine is chock full of delicious inspiration and insight on winter soups and hearty stews, the season's best citrus, and an in-depth and beguiling article all about the inside story of cage-free eggs. Briarly is here to dish on the editorial, an expose called Flying the Coop, and I'm glad to have you. Hi, Briarly. Another great issue. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you for having me as well. I found the article really interesting. There is a revolution happening in the egg industry as we speak, and I think we're all closer to it than we realize. There really is quite a revolution happening, and it's not just based on consumer demand. You're starting to see a lot of restaurants, especially fast casual and fast food change, making the switch over, yes. um, as well as grocery stores and you know other food retail outlets. So it is it, going cage-free is really becoming quite um, a momentous shift. I thought that the article was so well written and it prompted me to reach out to you because I felt that the information really needed to be shared. There's a lot that we uh, are, we don't know. Um, please excuse the analogy, but being kept in the dark, uh, which so much so applies to, <laughs> to the, the state of a lot of these factories for egg production. It amazed me. Eggs are considered the cheapest source of high-quality protein on our planet, but the shift to cage-free is often questioned as to whether it's just an extra surcharge or a change for the better when it comes to animal welfare. Exactly, exactly. And there are a lot of issues at play that kind of increase the cost for the consumer Uh, and also, obviously, for the producer. We're flying the coop more with Brearley White of Eating Well magazine on the state of the egg industry after the break.
Welcome back. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. We're dishing on the egg industry. Eating Well magazine editor Brearley White is here. Can we talk about the different choices then when we have buying eggs? Because I agree with you through education and understanding we can elevate. When you read organic or cage-free on a carton, what does it mean? Okay, so cage-free is a very, very loose definition. And it basically means that hens that are raised for egg production have to have a, like a free area to roam. Um, they have to have unlimited access to food and water. But there are no requirements for how much space they get or whether or not they can go outdoors or whether or not they can get, um, let's call them amenities that are... Um, <laughs> that are nice for chickens to have because of their natural behaviors that they like, you know, like little boxes to lay their eggs or perches to sit up on and see what's going on. Right. They like privacy, I understand from the article. They do. They like privacy for for laying their eggs. Organic gets you gets you a little bit more that you get to know about. So they, again, they still, just like cage-free, they have to be able to roam around um, and unlimited access to food and water. When it comes to food, they have to be fed an organic diet. And then the, the additional layer, too, compared to cage-free, is that organic eggs or orga- hens raised to produce organic eggs have to have access to the outdoors. But there isn't a lot of stipulation about how much outdoor mm-hmm. access they have. So depending on the producer, they may have what you probably imagine in your mind, like running around in a yard, or they might just have like a little porch that a couple of hens can sit on at a time. See, I think it's fascinating. And then you can go in a, a, another step, a step further. I wasn't yeah. surprised, but I was so glad that it was written down on paper. A statistic in the article that mentions that eggs from hens raised on pasture, so that would be qualified as pasture raised on a carton, right? actually have a significant health benefit when it comes, the hens themselves, to the eggs that they produce. So I began to surmise that it's more about the feed than it is the cage. Yes. Yes. So that comes to when you're thinking about the nutritional quality of your food, because obviously there there are two things. You can think about the nutritional quality and you can think about the, you know, environmental impact or the the, uh, how ethical the how well the animal is treated. So when you come about at it from a health perspective, um, there is research that shows animals raised on pasture, which I I do have to add that pasture is, pasture raised is not uh, a defined term by USDA. So it is kind of (laughs) loosey-goosey, but uh, like a free-range hen um, does get to kind of peck around outside. And the research shows that they have twice the amount of vitamin E and heart-healthy omega-3s and more beta-carotene in those eggs. But the, the challenging part is that, or, or kind of the neat part when you think about it from a science perspective, is that whatever it is that you feed a hen ends up in their eggs. So it, it's just like straight from mouth to egg. Uh, and so if you tweak the feed that you're feeding your hens or you give them like a very robust full of, you know, micronutrient type of feed, the egg is going to have it in there as well. And there are, you know, there are 
producers out there who are really ch- filling up their feed with all of these awesome vitamins and minerals and micronutrients so that the egg is just as nutritious, if not more so, than one that has this very, what I like to think of as like bucolic farm life. Right. I I think it is truly fascinating to understand the industry better. And again, I believe that education allows us to elevate. The article is very well written. It is an in-depth perspective into um, the, the world of eggs um, albeit cage-free or otherwise. And there's no doubt that the industry is changing. And as consumers, we need to be aware and we need to no doubt elevate. Uh, Eating Well Magazine is where good taste meets good health. And you have once again achieved it in this issue. And I thank you, Briarly, for shedding some light. Um, I think it's a must read. So grab your current copy of Eating Well magazine still on newsstands now. And Briarly, please come back and talk food and health and all the goodness that uh, enriches our lives again soon, please. Anytime. Thank you so much. I'd love to have you. And so that brings us to the end of another hour of informative, entertaining, and delicious conversation. Well, at least I hope you thought so. I will leave you with my last bite for the hour, my last ounce or tidbit of gastronomic inspiration. This is the easiest butternut squash soup you will ever make. If you know me or you've listened for a long time, you know I love super simple less than five ingredient recipes. And it turns out that this creamy, beautiful, rich soup with the most pure butternut squash flavor you will ever taste is just two ingredients. Now, granted, some of you great cooks might want to add a little more flavor. So you could add curry powder or nutmeg or garlic or, you know, the uh, opportunities are endless. But no matter what you add, take it from me, it is a brilliant recipe. So, You very simply buy a bag or two of butternut squash. Uh, You could buy a whole butternut and, you know, uh, peel it, take out the seeds. But why? You just buy the cubes, approximately four pounds of butternut squash, and you roast it on a sheet pan for about, you know, 25 minutes to a half hour until it's really tender all the way through. I roast at 350. Then you cool it and you dump it in a soup pot and you add two cans of coconut milk, salt, and pepper. Yes, you heard me right. Two ingredients for this butternut squash soup that is out of this world. Butternut squash and coconut soup come together beautifully. You're going to bring it to a simmer and let it cook for about 10 minutes for the flavors to meld. Then you'll remove it from the heat and you'll blend it, whether in your food processor or your blender, till it's silky smooth. And you have what is the ultimate warm your soul winter soup. That's just so easy. Once again, I thank you for listening. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen signing off. I hope you continue to eat well. Well.